I don't know. Good evening, folks. My name's Norm, and I'm an alcoholic. Hello, Norm. <laughs> Crazy. You know, when you go to conventions and meetings and so forth, you're always able to uh, take something home, take something out of it. And, and uh, <clears throat> sitting there last night and listening to Don Clock, uh, I was forever grateful that I never drank any port wine. <laughs> <laughs> and that... <laughs> But I'll say this is I certainly want to thank the committee for the opportunity to be here, to participate, to share. I certainly want to thank Dick and thank Jim for the hospitality they've shown us and taking care of us. And I want to thank all of the people here for the hospitality they've shown me. The hospitality in Omaha has been outstanding. You know, them Texicans down there in Texas, where they, and Joe knows, they, they talk about that hospitality, but I'll tell you something right now, man. Omaha does it, and I want to thank you very much. <laughs> But I could, I could say also that I'll take far more away, you know, back to Los Angeles when I leave, and I'll leave behind here. And in all seriousness, I want to thank all you folks here in the Midwest, or I call it back east people. I want to thank you very much for being my friend. Uh, I also want to welcome tonight all of the new people that are here tonight for your first 30 days in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I say this without really knowing, but I take it for granted that we've got some new people out there, because, you know, back home in Los Angeles, while we're moving through the, the light wine and beer season, and we get a lot of fallout about this time, we get... <laughs> The last of the Christmas holdouts are coming in now, you know. So, I, feel, I feel sure that we got some new people out there this evening, and uh, being new, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that you've now associated yourself with one of the most unpopular, popular fellowships in the world. Now, hell, nobody begins his life wanting to become an alcoholic and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's not a great deal of class to be an alky and a member of this program. Now, when I came in, there was no status connected to it. They didn't issue out pins and said, you're a 32nd degree alcoholic, you know, and you you run all over L.A. and you showed everybody your pin, and your friend said, man, you made it, Norm. I'm glad you did. You worked like hell. Great, yeah. Oh, no. No, I didn't get down there to my high school concert, and he says, Norm, what would you like to be? And I said, an alcoholic. Yeah. And he said, marvelous. We've got a hell of a program for jackasses, boy. Yeah. So I took that program, and I ripped that city for 15 years. I ended up in A, and everybody lived happily ever after, and that ain't it, and you know it isn't it. No. Because any full-blown alcoholic resists this program right down to the bitter end. Because the day before I came to the program, I wasn't an alcoholic. No, I was a, a heavy drinker, a victim of unusual circumstances, rotten drivers and bad whiskey, but man, I ain't no alcoholic. And I ain't going to AA. And I stayed out there, man, and I fought it right down to the wire, and I tried all the things I could find until there was no more left to try. Until I got down to the bottom of the barrel, I'd lay there and I'm busted, you see. And I, and I surrendered. Without knowing, I surrendered, and I came into the program, and I grabbed the package, and it now became the most popular program in my life. And to the new people that are out there this evening, I hope to God that the day will come in your life when you can say without any reservation whatsoever, it's the most popular program I've ever been subjected to. It's the best deal I ever had. And I'm a guy that looked half the world out there trying to find the best deal. And I didn't find it, not until I got here, until I was surrounded by a marvelous group of people who would call themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. For the new people, I give yourself a break and come on in. To qualify that initial statement I made, I'm an alcoholic. And I'm not by any stretch of the imagination an authority or a consultant of the program Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an example Good or bad, that AA works, that it hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink, steal anything, or go to jail now for 17 days, 5 months, and 27 years. <laughs> I thought that up while we were going through all that qualification up here, you see. I really lied a little bit. I stole that from another guy. 
<laughs> but you give them credit for it for three times, and after that, it's yours. You know that's the way it is. <laughs> but you know, to the new people out, <laughs> I really didn't think anybody would be impressed here today. You know, but uh, I'm impressed, or I never brought it up. You know that. <laughs> and uh, you never know. We, uh, I've been talking about it for years. We might get a pension program going in AA. <laughs> And God knows if we do, I, Don and I and Joe, we'd like to get credit for all our time. So, uh, we bring it up any time we have the opportunity. If we don't have the opportunity, we're going to bring it up anyway. But to the new people, as I made mention, the new people who are sitting out there tonight, where you, you, know, you saw a lot of sobriety over the last couple of days. I can think about Peggy, and she's talking about 16 years. And Don's talking about 33, and Joey Baby's going to talk about some... Uh, 31 years, I'm talking about a few years. You put just those four people together, you got 100 years of sobriety. And, you know, you're sitting out there, and you're brand new, and you're sitting down with your hands, and, and you're hearing all this, and uh, it's difficult to, difficult to digest. And I can understand that. I can still remember sitting in that first AA meeting, and I hope the hell I never forget. I'm sitting there in that meeting, and I'm 29 years old. I'll be 57 in November. <laughs> you can always tell a guy's trying to figure it out mathematically. And you, you save a lot of time and a lot of, you know, anyway. <laughs> this first speaker, you know, he's standing up there in front of the group that night. And he said, um, I found it necessary to take a drink, steal anything, or go to jail now for nine and a half years. And I reacted to that. And I thought, nine and a half years? Man, the first thing I could think about was, God, he's the biggest liar I ever heard. Who else other? How the hell could a guy go nine and a half years out there in that rotten jungle without any booze? How does he deal with all them lousy people and meet his responsibilities like he's supposed to do and be honest and you couldn't steal anymore? He hadn't had a hooker now for nine and a half years. And I, no, that's a drink in L.A. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what it is in Omaha, but uh, <laughs> anyway, he hadn't had a drink for nine and a half years. <laughs> I, I was just, you know, I was dumbfounded, crestfallen. I got to think, yo, I thought, well, yo, if he'd have been a year, if he'd have gone a year without any booze, hell, I could understand that. You know, I could digest that because I remember one time I'd been 11 and a half months and I hadn't had any drink. I'd been in jail and I'd, uh, <laughs> I got through that all right. It wasn't a big deal. I didn't like it, but I'd made it. And I thought, you know, I might be able to make that 12 months or 14, but I'd be going to hell if I could make nine and a half. And that thing, you know, became a nine and a half year program. I almost rationalized myself right out the door and into them gin mills out there, but my salvation was that I kept going to meetings. <clears throat> and whether you've been around for 27 days or 27 years without any meetings, it isn't a great deal. Sure, I got friends that haven't been to a meeting in 15 or 20 years, and they seem to function. They seem to be doing very well out there. Exterior, they're doing materially, they're doing it. Uh, but I couldn't do it. For me to function out there on that street, I've got to have the, the insurance. I, I've got to be associated with the people that understand me, and, and I understand them. I've got to have any semblance of sanity and peace of mind. I... I'm going to extract it from the meetings. And when you're brand new, you know, it's so very important. My sponsor said go to a lot of meetings. I didn't like my sponsor, so I went to a lot of meetings. I had a lot of questions, and the questions, if you knew, they're going to be answered by going to the meetings. And in the meetings, I soon discovered that the program didn't go for the next nine and a half years, that all I had to take care of was right now, because that's all you got. They said, man, it's now, and get it now. And that's what it is, isn't it? I couldn't change what happened a couple of hours ago, and I couldn't tell you for sure what's going to happen a couple of hours from now. So if I got anything going, my life is going right now, man, and get it all, good, bad, or indifferent. Get all you can get, because it may not be around, nor I, later on, to get now. And taking care of the now period of my life, I discovered that the, the day ran for me, and in a week and a month, and pretty soon, it's 27 years. It was the other day. It was just the other day that I walked through the doors. It went that fast, and I'm sitting there in those AA meetings, and I'm going through the mental gymnastics and wondering, why am I an alcoholic? <laughs> and I don't think anybody comes to this program that didn't sit there and wonder, why the hell am I an alcoholic? God, of all the things that go to bed, why am I an alky? You know, if we got a million people in the program, we got a million answers to that. The only thing a couple of alcoholics agree upon is the fact that AA works. Other than that, we're going to argue about everything else, aren't we? Sure. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I wonder why I'm an alcoholic. Well, I'm probably alcoholic because of my environment. That's, uh, I couldn't spell a word, but it sounded good, yeah. I'm a product of Los Angeles, no wonder I got a lot of trouble. I, and my family, my family created a lot of problems in my life. My, my family was a heavy drinking family, drank a lot of booze out there. Irish Italian family, too poor to paint, too proud to whitewash. <laughs> Not too bright and talked a lot with her hands. Yeah. But I'll tell you one qualification we had out there, man. We knew a lot about booze. We did, yeah. We knew how to make that booze and how to drink it. And that's the way it was. The Italians made it and the Irish drank it. And I got to AA, yeah. And I was the only alcoholic in a whole rotten family at that time. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, why have I been given the cross to carry the whole rotten family when I'm the best they produced? And there's no question about that because I've asked myself several times, who's the best guy you know, Norm? I'm the best guy, yeah. Well, if you are, why do you go to meetings and nobody in your family goes to meetings? I don't know why I do that, yeah. And I got to thinking, well, maybe the people, places, and things, maybe the nationality in the cities didn't create booze, didn't create your alcoholism, and they didn't. They don't. What the hell? LA's a city. You know and I know. You can get out of anywhere you want to get out of. If you want it bad enough and you're willing to make the sacrifices together to do it, then you stay sober. By the same token, I can be anybody I want to be, do anything I want to do. If I want that bad enough, I'm willing to make the sacrifices together to do that, providing I stay sober. L.A. did not make me alcoholic, nor did my family. I am alcoholic because I drank too much whiskey. And I figured that out by myself. What a giant decision. Man, I drank that booze out there as hard and as fast as I could drink it. And somewhere in that lottery of my life, I crossed some invisible line from the social aspect of drinking to the compulsive area. One's too many, and a thousand aren't enough. <laughs> my entire life revolves around booze. People that sell it and people that drink it, and after half a dozen drinks, I got no control over my destiny. I want to keep going until there's no more out there. I am alcoholic by virtue of the whiskey I drank. And I'm the guy that did the drinking, so when you get right down to it, the number one and the bottom line, I'm the problem. Because no matter where I go, I'm the first guy to get there, right? <laughs> yeah. Hell, I've never, and I bet you didn't either, ever called anybody up and said, will you come down, man, and help me get it screwed up? No. Oh, no, I'm able to take care of that very well. Oh, I can overreact to any situation anywhere, anytime. I don't need it. Not as bad today as I used to be, but <clears throat> I still find that I can get out there and jam. I can revert back to the old ideas back there. Sure, being successful, making money's pretty good, but getting even's better sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> And that's that old defect of character, and I, <laughs> I had that for a long time. I had that long before I ever took a drink. Hell, I'm a rationalizer, a justifier, a compromiser, and I got a rotten attitude, and you don't need it anymore. <laughs> I traveled half the world and half my life, I made a complete ass of myself. I spent money I didn't have buying things I didn't need, trying to impress people I didn't like. I think that's the story of most alcoholics. I sat around them gin mills hour after hour, built the castles in the air and formed the corporations and wondered what the poor people were doing. Uh, talked to millions, spent in thousands, and never had a dollar in my pocket. Drove them Cadillacs up and down the barn, night after night after night. And when them high rollers said, what do you do? I said, man, I do it all. I thought you knew. I'm the general manager of the universe, boy, that's what I am. A lifetime of impressing a group of people I never met in my life that I'm something I'm not. <laughs> because I never knew what I wanted to be or what I was. I felt it was important to always justify and be something else. I heard a story in Texas years ago, and it was a story in my life. You may have heard it. It's clean, so I thought I might tell it again. Because it was a story in my life. And this Texican, he's standing up there and he's telling the story. And he said, it's about the blacksmith. And the blacksmith is making his horseshoe. <laughs> and it's in this forge and it's hot as hell. And he pulls it out and he pounds it all out and he throws it down the ground. And there's an old cowboy standing there watching the whole thing. And he reaches down, he picks up that horseshoe, and quick, he throws it back down on the ground. 
And the old blacksmith turned to him and he said, hot, wasn't it? And the old cowboy said, no, it doesn't take me long to look at a horseshoe. But that guy didn't know that I would destroy my life. Running all around justifying the stupidity of my existence. Yeah, the guy says, you're drunk in the street. No, I'm going to say, the hell I am. I love the street, man. What are you talking about? Sure. Always coming from behind, always having to justify and compromise my life. And I walked through the doors, and I found out a lot of things when I came into this program. I found out that I didn't have to operate. I didn't have to live that way any longer. I found out all I had to be in AA is be me. Be myself. My sponsor and my sponsor's sponsor says, don't impress us in AA, buddy. We've been impressed by experts. And no matter where you've been, we got there long before you did. Yeah. No matter what, we, what you drank, well, we drank more of it than, than is around here. Yeah, I, I mentioned to him, I said, well, Cy, you know, I, I've been in jail about 25 times. And he said, the hell yeah, son, I did it in a year. So you find out right away that no matter where it was, they got there before you. So if you're new here this evening, you might give it a little thought. And you might buy the package that's available to you here. And you might take it out there on that city street with me tomorrow. And you might spend a day out there being yourself and being sober, not having to justify your existence or compromise your life. It's as good a deal as I ever had in my life. Tonight to tell you just a little bit about what I was like. I told you a great deal. I'm a guy with an attitude problem. Now, if you got an attitude problem, you got a lot of trouble. Life and living is a matter of attitude. You, get, you, know, you get up in the morning, you got a rotten attitude, you got a rotten day out there. Is that the way it goes? If you don't change it, you go a week. A month, hell, I had a year out there with that bad attitude. My bad attitude got me in a lot of trouble. I got picked up for the first time in 1939. Not because I was drinking, because I wasn't. I was stealing. I was too young to be drinking at that time. <laughs> I was in the car business. I'm a thief by trade. I am an alcoholic by absorption. It was about 10 years ago. It was too big to carry. I laid down beside it and claimed it. And that's... Uh, that was about the story of my life. As I mentioned, I was in the car business. <clears throat> I popped hubcaps, radios, heaters, spotlights, anything you move off the car. After you know, I got to be a job to gather up all that crap so we started stealing cars. And overnight, I became one of the finest car thieves that ever came out of the valley. <clears throat> and I enjoyed what I was doing, and I did well at it. Uh, very difficult to explain. You know, if you never hooked a man's car... Uh, the feeling you get, the instantaneous exhilaration as you're driving off and he's running after you, you know. <laughs> God, your heart comes right up in your throat and you break out in a cold sweat and there for ten seconds you're living and dying and you're going. And I just get excited talking about it tonight, really. <laughs> it's illegal, unfortunately. <laughs> and there's an old thing called retribution that says what's going out is coming back. If you're going to play, you got to pay. Yeah, kind of a sad situation, but that's the way it is, and I fully and totally understand it today. And I got picked up in 39, went in front of the man, the man sent me to jail. And in the city jail, I served a little time. Then on out to some bigger and better things. Then I got a release. Came back to Los Angeles. I walked back into L.A., and I'm, I'm still looking for the fantasy land out there, and don't know it. The fantasy land I was trying to find walked in. It was 1940. It was Easter week in L.A., Easter week, Balboa Beach, the rendezvous ballroom, Stan Kenton, and Padre Beer. Man, what a deal. <laughs> God, we take a little padre and you get a little buzz on. You go on the dance hall and you dance with them dollies and you act four times drunk on what you were and you breathe on them girls. Oh, you know, let them know. <laughs> the man's in from L.A., baby. Yeah. Let me tell you, I had a lot of fun. In the beginning, it was a fun time. The big bands and padre beer and the dollies and fun. And I'm no alcoholic. I kind of ground it out. I moved from padre beer into Rainier Ale. From Rainier Ale, I moved into 10 High Whiskey and when I got to whiskey, I found it. Man, I didn't need the funny cigarettes or nothing else because that whiskey did it. It got me downtown. And man, I want to be downtown. And I want to get downtown right now. <laughs> and that's the one thing about whiskey, I'll tell you. It gets your attention, don't it? Oh, man. I broke in on that 10 high. And if they made anything worse than that, they never sold any of it. I'll tell you that. 
bust that tent high was rotten. It was about 60 cents a pint, and you tasted every loving drop going down. Man, it burned going and coming. It ran out my nose and made my eyes water a lot. <laughs> but I hung in. I think that's important. Hell, if you're going to be an alcoholic, don't give up because you throw up a little. Stay in there, boy. Yeah. And the day comes when you can drink a pint of whiskey and you don't heave anymore. And it kind of gives you a sense of well-being. And I'll, I'll tell you something else. There's a lot to be said about cheaper whiskey. When you throw it up, you don't lose much. Huh? Yeah. You know, in our business, we buy a lot of whiskey around at Christmas times. And uh, we got some customers out there, you know, like that good stuff. That wild turkey, $13 a fifth. Can you believe that? Every time I buy some, I think about, what if he throws it up for Christmas? <laughs> can you imagine heaving $13 whiskey? Oh, there it goes. Why... God, that'll make you sick just watching it roll out, won't it? <laughs> I just kind of pass that on. If anybody's here thinking about going out, well, think of the economics, man. Stick, stick down to that cheap crap. <laughs> anyway, the whiskey's kind of moved my personality around a little, and I started getting in jams I've never been in before. And then I violated my probation, and then I'm picked up by the cops. They gave me the opportunity to, the judge did, give me the opportunity to <clears throat> go back and serve out the time or join the service. It was January 1942, and so I'd never been in the Navy, and I joined the Navy. There was another bad decision. My life's been filled with bad decisions. I got in the Navy, and all the enemies I had in L.A. had joined the Navy the same day I did. Yeah. <laughs> I've always reacted to authority, and I overreacted. And I went into seaman in 1942, and four years later I came out and I was a seaman. The people said to me, that's impossible, but not if you work at it. You know that, sure. And it wasn't anything intentional. I, you know, I was clean uh, when I was aboard ship. I didn't get in any trouble because I liked ships. And I like to see. I drank a little Sneaky Pete and a little fermented coconut juice with aqua velvet on ship, but I, you know, I never really got out of line with it. As soon as that baby hit the beach and I was out there on that shore, why, man, I'm in trouble. And so in the four years, I had a deck, a summary, and a general court-martial. And the general court-martial was the highest the Navy had to offer at that time. It didn't go any higher than that. People used to point me out on the ship, there he goes, the biggest we ever had right there, you know. <laughs> well, I went to court and I went to... Read off and have an attorney and they gave me 11 and a half months in the Navy brig up there in the top of God Island. But they restored me to duty because I, he went for clemency. And I fulfilled the commitment of the four years. And the reason I was able to handle four years and not have something worse, a dishonorable or a bad conduct discharge, is like most alcoholics, I'm a hard worker. I think you can say that about 95% of the alcoholics are hard workers. They gotta be. You gotta work 25% harder than anybody else just to stay even out there when you're an alky, right? Yeah, the best day an alky has is Tuesday. He missed Monday. Go, man, yeah. Oh, you got to get that heat off. So you go like hell in order to get that heat off. Sure, the heat on, the heat off. An entire life out there I spent. You know, you got a guy at work and he's running all over hell on Tuesday morning. He's an alcoholic. There's no question about it. And that was the story of my life. I discharged out on Christmas Eve in 1945 and I came back to L.A. in 46. And I'm alcoholic. I have crossed this invisible line that I spoke about. I'm out there trying to get a handle on it. Trying to drink like my old man and my brothers and the guys that I'm running with. <clears throat> I'm searching the answer to living in that whiskey. I can't live with it and I can't live without it and I don't want to. I can use the program in 1946 and I hear about the program in 1946 because God knows in strange and mysterious ways. And no matter what you do or you don't do, man, it's going to work that way anyway. In 1946, I made a profound statement to myself and I said, Self, don't drink in Pasadena anymore. <laughs> Pasadena is a rotten town. They got bad cops and a bad judge. I got picked up on two 502s, which is drunk driving. I had three plain drunk arrests and I... <clears throat> Last time I went in front of the judge, he gave me a year, suspended it, put me on three years probation, and stipulated I couldn't be caught in a place that served or sold alcoholic beverages while I was in violation. So, I'm a half-smart alky, and I'm thinking, I'm drinking in Pasadena. <laughs> now, 
I drank out there in the city, in other cities. And I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm getting, you know, I drink a little in Pasadena, but I don't get drunk. <clears throat> and then one night, while I, uh, I was in town maybe 70 miles away, and while I was drinking, I committed the cardinal sin. I began to think. Well, that's a bad deal for an alcoholic. You should either think or drink, but God, don't do them both at the same time. <laughs> now, I got to thinking about that rotten judge in that lousy town. This is a free country. I'm a veteran for crying out loud. You know, I want to go back and go on back. Well, that's just that rationale. What's left? I drove back to Pasadena. I went down to a joint called the Green Terrace. I got a load on. I met a buddy of mine. We went out and we got in my car. We pulled out in the street. I couldn't have gone a half a mile. The car pulls in front of me. I'm too drunk. I can't see it. And I slammed into him and I ran from the scene of the accident because I'm frightened. Yeah, all my life I'm frightened. I'm living on the edge and I'm about ready to fall over and I'm frightened. I got no driver's license. That moment of clarity comes to you. I have no driver's license. I'm dead drunk. I got a year suspended. I'm in Pasadena. Get the hell out. Get. And I ran. Two blocks, three blocks to the outside, and the next thing I remember, they were forcing me to the curb. The next thing I remember, I was laying in the tank, and I got up in the morning when they called me, and looking for the book and slip, huh? Search and seizure program, the book and slip. And I read it, and they got me on a 501 felony, drunk driving, hit and run, bodily injury involved. And I'm saying to myself, God, why, why? And they load you into that elevator, and you're standing there with a dozen other guys, and you're getting that used bourbon back and forth. You know how that is. And that, you know, that elevator drops three, four. You know, there it is, right there. And they put you in that little room, and you wait for your name to be called. They call your name, and you walk down through the courtroom, and 7,000 people are looking at you, you know, and you're hanging your head, and you stand in front of the judge, and, <clears throat> and the judge is telling you what kind of guy you are. And he turns to the bailiff, and he says, get him out. And you know when it gets tough today out in that street, when I think I can't cut it, I say, God, give me the strength to let me remember who the hell I am and where I came from and what it took to bring me to that point in my life. If I think it's tough, let me remember the year of 46 when I woke in the slammer and I thought I'd kill them people. The division between total disaster, what is it, three feet? A fraction of a second. That's all. You see, that night, if I'd have been over three and a half feet at a broadside of that car at the rate of speed I was traveling, I'd have killed them. Fractions. If that isn't tough, I'll remember the 51 and you're laying in the tank down in Big Spring, Texas. Dirt floor and cockroaches are running over your head and they don't give you anything to eat for a couple of days they give you water if you think it's tough today Norm you better remember you better remember out there when it was rough take me back for God's sake give me the strength and God moving in these strange and mysterious ways you see in spite of myself I was sent to jail and in the city jail I shared a cell with a guy going to AA 200 guys were in the can one guy got out of once a week he went to AA meetings they picked him up and took him to meetings and after the meeting was over he's dying to talk to somebody about it well you don't have a big audience in a jail cell and so he would sit there and he'd tell me all about this AA. And he says, no, I want you to go to a meeting with me. I'll fix it and you can go. And I said, Sully, I know alcoholic. So I'm not going to AA. I'm too young. Your case is different. What the hell, I get to be as old as you, 36, you're over the hill, man. <laughs> what do you got to contribute out there to anybody after you get up there? Now, I get as old as you and as bad as you and your brother's way. Maybe I'll do something. And so he went his way and I went mine. But that seed was planted and I never forgot him. No. I drank out there another eight years. In that eight and a half year period of time, I, I was blessed with being at the right place at the right time. I went to work with one of the largest construction firms in the world, pipe business. Stayed with them 11 years. <clears throat> Began out there as an equipment operator. And from there, then on to foreman, then general foreman, then superintendent, and the head troubleshooter for all the high-pressure water transmission lines of that company. <clears throat> and the youngest that that company ever had. And that's, you know, that ego is getting satisfied. And I'm making the money, and I'm drinking the whiskey. And I'm drinking in better places, and I'm drinking better booze. And everything is going my way. And then I have a little setback about that time. I met and married a red-headed Irish woman. <laughs> had a violent temper and a rotten disposition and used to yell at me all the time. And anything an alcoholic can't tolerate is that people yell at him. He's a very sensitive individual, you know that. My God, you're out there a couple of days and you're drunk and you're tired and you come home. 
You've been busy. <coughs> yeah. When you walk in the house and you want to be greeted with a little love, affection, and understanding, who the hell likes to be greeted with that crap? You're drunk again. Hasn't even smelled my breath. Fifteen feet away, she's drunk again. I used to call her on the phone and she'd say, you're drinking. And I used to wonder, you know, she's good, but how the hell could she smell her through the phone, I wonder. I got so paranoid, I thought she'd hired people to follow me. I used to sit around in gin mills and look, where the hell is that guy out there, I wonder. <laughs> this marriage, we had a lot of problems. She told one story, I'm telling you another. <laughs> my bar associates had told me, don't marry a woman without a job. At that time, she was going to that playhouse, which she was also working, had a hell of a job. <clears throat> he said, you know, when a woman is working, your wife is working, you have doubled your income. If she isn't working, you got a liability. And about midnight, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's all right. Well, old Red had a hell of a job. Things are going our way. You got that double income. Boy, it was incredible. And that went on for two or three months. And I walked in the house one day, and she says, Norm, I've been to the doctor, and I'm pregnant. <clears throat> and the doctor said, i got to quit my job and get off my feet. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Did, did you ever tell an alcoholic something you don't want to believe? I don't believe that. I thought we ought to have a second opinion anyway, you know. <laughs> but she assured me she was home free, so I, I thought, well, what the hell, I'd keep her, only takes about nine months, we'll give her two to get on her feet, we'll get the rotten job back, and everything's going to be just like it was. And hell, that was 34 years ago, and that woman ain't turned a tap since that day, huh? <laughs> she got herself in that shape eight times, it was incredible. <laughs> Every other year, instead of the locusts coming in, zing, there she goes, St. Luke. <laughs> that Vatican roulette, we had the bad number, it was 13 every other year, zing, there she goes, you know. Got to couldn't make a bar bill anymore, and there she was, down there. And these conversations we'd have, you know, you're drunk again, who, me? Yeah, you. And then I'd hit her with a big one, I'd say, do you know who you're talking to? And in case she didn't, I'd introduce myself. <laughs> I think that's important to the alcoholic to introduce himself to his wife from time to time, right? I'm old Norm, baby. That's who the hell I am, and don't you ever forget that. <laughs> and then she'd mimic me as the only way that Irish women can do it. I'm old Norm. That's who I am. <laughs> That's so degrading for a high roller, isn't it? <clears throat> You're standing there with your best friend, your new business partner. You met him in the bar last night. You've invited him home. And the reason he's coming home with me is hell, he don't want to go home alone either. He's scared of his wife. You got that security of numbers. <clears throat> and I say, woman, you've embarrassed me in front of my best friend. And if you don't shut that Irish mouth and apologize to us for what you've just said, I'm leaving and I ain't never coming back. What do you think of that? And she'd go out and throw my clothes out. <laughs> Man, you got to pick them damn clothes up, don't you? Because you got to save face in front of your friend that you can't remember his name. Then <laughs> you pick up them clothes and you pack them out, in and out, loading up that car. Uh, that old clothes packing alky is a joy to the neighborhood, I'll tell you. <laughs> Beats the hell out of gun smoke every Saturday night, don't it? <laughs> Watching the old Alky out there loading up his car, staggering around, you know. Oh, there he goes. Just sitting in the front seat, honking his horn. Honk, honk, honk. I'm going, George. She did it again. I ain't never coming back. Zoom. Off into the sunset drives the alcoholic never to return. A couple of days later, he wakes up in the front seat of the car. You're tapped out, and you got your head screwed up under the armrest, right? Got the door handle in your ear, huh? Ever wake up about midnight, sick as hell, and you think your window's down, it's up. <laughs> you heave right in your window. Knock the hell out of your head. 
Then you roll the window down. Squish, 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 squish. Yeah. <laughs> then you wonder why the hell he didn't roll it down before he heaved on it, huh? I could never figure that out. And then you drive home because you've got to wash your car out. And on the way home, why another disaster strikes, you have a flat tire. And if you're a full-blown alcoholic, you would never change a flat tire. You drive on them. Right. Because you know everything that's disagreeable in your life will go away. And it does. The tire goes away. You're now driving on the rim. They call them rim drivers in AA. The sparks are flying. The neighbors are running out, getting the kids the hell out of the way. Did you ever see a donkey coming home on the rim? He's got the death grip on the wheel. There he comes. His face is the color of hawk meat as he turns that car into the driveway. Into the driveway, up in the lawn. Opens the door and he falls out. <laughs> and then you get up in a little while and you say to yourself, I wonder if anybody saw me. <laughs> because if you're an alcoholic, you think nobody knows I drink, right? Yeah, and we worry a great deal about our reputation. We worry so much about it, we lay around on the lawn. <laughs> and the street. Sidewalk, hedge. The hedges are bad. <laughs> I remember I fell on a hedge in Phoenix. I was dead drunk. You know how it gets in your clothes, you know. And I couldn't get out. Uh, and you have a feeling you might die in that hedge, right. Then <laughs> you pass out and eventually when you get out. Nobody can make out of a hedge what an alcoholic can, I'll tell you that. But you can see under the conditions I existed under, very little of my drinking was done around that house. I did it all out there in them gin mills because I was always a bar drinker. All my life, I liked them. I like the dark lights and I like the rotten music and I like that intellectual giant I met there solving the problems and building the castles and sitting there about midnight and looking in that mirror. You, you kind of get mesmerized, don't you? You get that Maybelline look about, you know. <laughs> about midnight and you're wide-eyed sitting there. You devil, you, there you are. It's incredible how good looking you got in the last hour, isn't it? You... And you're bringing that drink up and you notice your arm and oh, you're a killer too. You are. 150 ringing wet in those days. I couldn't lick my lips, let alone anybody else. <laughs> that whiskey makes a liver and a killer out of you. You get so drunk, you can't remember what you are. You're well-built, good-looking, intellectual, and wealthy. You got a $30 smiling Frankie Gordon suit on. You got 50 cents worth of chili right down the front of it there, right? <laughs> you smell bad. You can't talk. <clears throat> you go to the men's room. Bad deal. Pay toilet. No money. Can't get in. So you got to slide under the door, huh? I'll bet there's some door sliders here tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and then you slide out again. You never knew till you got to AA. Once you get in, all you got to do is turn the handle and walk out. Yeah. <laughs> but not the alky. Slides in, slides out. That's the way it's going to be. And the element of a need might be you lose your car and you wander around the city and you're looking for your car. You, know, you call home if you take my car again. God, what an experience. And then you, maybe you talk to a non-alcoholic about it and you only do that once. Because a non-alcoholic can never understand. I'll never forget the last time I made the jail was in Azusa. A couple of days after Christmas, it's 1853. And I call my neighbor, he's an attorney. New neighbor. You don't know me. I said, Julie, I'm in a can out here in Azusa. Do me a favor, will you get the money down here and bail me out? He said, I'll be down. And he came down, he bailed me out. And as we're walking out of jail, he says, Norm, let's get your car and get the hell out of here. And I says, Julie, I hate to tell you, but I don't know where my car is. And I'll never forget that look he had. He had the Maybelline look. He's standing there wide-eyed, staring at me. You lost your car? 
how the hell could you lose your car? I said, car weighs over 4,000 pounds. And I started to explain it to him, but I, I couldn't find the proper words. I, I just said, oh, I lost it. And I never mentioned it again because they never understood. I think one of the highlights of an alcoholic's life is the night that he finds his car. And it's kind of a spiritual experience. You're, you're walking down the street. There it is! Oh, God, my car, my car. It hasn't been impounded. Open the door, you get in. Back to bed. Right. Uh, Oh, yeah. We talk all about all these crazy things and we laugh a great deal about it today, but as we're grinding it out, as I'm walking down that road, why, well, there's really not much funny, is there, huh? Because every loving thing I got, that whiskey's taken. Little by little. Everything that means anything in my life, it's getting. Eventually, why, the old Yugoslavs I worked for in 1951 when they sold the corporation out to an Eastern firm. And the Eastern company came in and they laid down a lot of new rules and regulations, and education was a necessity. Image was big. And they said, it's not going to be the way it was. We're not paying any more fines. We're not bailing you guys out of jail. We're not calling more bail bonds. And you've got to straighten up. <clears throat> and the image. And by now I'm in the throes of the booze. And I don't pay any attention. <clears throat> because I figure, you know, I'm different. They need me. I'm the guy that makes it go out there and they ain't going to mess with me. And I keep getting into one jam after another. And Moses Lake, Washington. And they're paying a fine because I'm drunk and driving on the wrong side of the street. And then I deal in Big Spring, Texas, and it's bad. And it's so bad that after I paid the fine, they took me down to Midland. They put me on a plane. They sent me back to L.A., and they said, don't ever come back to West Texas again. And then they called the company and said, keep them out. And then the company called me and said, that's it. There's no more. That's the last chance you're ever going to get. And the next time we smell booze in your breath, buddy, you're through. Now do me a favor and get the hell out of my office. And how I wanted to reach over and how I wanted to grab him by the throat and how I wanted to say, who the hell do you think you're talking to? Who do you think you are, you Johnny-come-lately? I'm the man that makes it run. I drive the line. I'm the backbone of the division. And who the hell are you to tell me? I'm going to fix your wagon, friend. That's what I'm going to do. This is what I told the guys in the bar that night. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm going to fix you. I'm going to quit your rotten company. I'm putting you in a hell of a bind. Yeah. And then I'm going to open up my own company. I'm going to run you out of business. You're going to come down to see me for a job. You're going to walk in my office. And I'm going to say, get the hell out of here. I remember you. And then I had another drink. And I dreamed another dream. And I fell off another bar stool. And I didn't do anything, did I? Because I'm scared. Because I'm frightened. Because I'm living on the edge. And I think within myself that next time, next time's going to be different than the next time and the next time. And then one day I drive in the car home, and I've been gone a couple of days. And up here, that giant rationale, uh, one more lie, one more promise, old Red will let me in. I'd always been able to get in that house, always, you know. Baby, give me a break. The third act. Baby, Jesus, give me a break. And the tears are streaming down. Don't throw me out, Jesus. Think of the kids. And that priest he was telling me about, yeah, I'm going down to see him. I'm going to take him to the place. It's going to be all right, baby. You wait and see. The schemer, and you scheme, and you get in. And you start scheming to get back out. And then the day comes a lot. No more lying and no more promises. You walk in. And she tells you straight out. She says, Norm, you're a drunken bum. Now, you never lived to be 35 years old. Hell, you're drinking yourself to death. I'm an erotic because of you. Look at all the kids. They're neurotics because of you. Hell, I spent the last, you know, the better part of the last eight years, I said, here, looking through the front room window, waiting to see your car come home. Night after night after night, and you never come in. And I die. And I hear the siren scream the streets. And I think it's the cops, and they got you, and I die. Or it's an ambulance, they found you dead, and you never come in, and I die. And she said, I can't go through it. And I call an attorney. And I ask for separate maintenance. And I put a restraining order against you. And I'm divorcing you. And you get the hell out of my life. And the alcoholic can never believe it, huh? And so you pick up a few things, and you walk out of the car, and you drive away, and you say to yourself, Why me? What the hell? I'm not that bad a guy. Always within you say, I'm not that bad. Why not Charlie and Bill and them bums out there that never even work? Why me? And you know what I know. You're an alcoholic. 
You're drinking enough whiskey long enough, enough booze long enough and hard enough. It's just a matter of time until you, until you grind it out, until you got nothing, until you tapped out. Uh, gets every loving thing you got. Sure, there's isolated cases where people have put up with that crap for 20 years. <clears throat> Always hoping that jackass is going to straighten out. Did you believe that? 20 years, you know. Hey, watch him flop in and out of the house. 20 years of picking up the pieces. 20 years of lying for him. 20 years of promises he can't make. 20 years of telling friends and relations don't come over. Norm's got the flu. He flew right out of the bed. Yeah. <laughs> Hell, I wouldn't go through it 20 days, let alone 20 years, but there are people that hang in. God gives them a lot of strength. God doesn't do them any favor, but he gives them a lot of strength. And they hang in, and they come to these meetings, and they walk through the door, and they're sick. He's sick. She's sick. And in her eyes, you can read it. You ain't going to make it. This guy's tried everything in the world. He'll never make this. Nothing works. Then you see the same couple a couple of months later, and they're walking through the same doors, to the same meetings. And the guy's sharp out of it. He's looking pretty good. Hey, look at the woman, and she's changed to her, and in her eyes is a new story. Maybe a few tears. The story says, I, I've been waiting 20 years for this to happen. And finally it's happened, and today we're happier than we've ever been in our life. And it's all made possible through a unique miracle that you and I choose to call Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to be able to tell all the new people that are here this evening, that's what it's going to be for you, but, but that isn't what we got to tell you. That isn't what we got to offer. Well, we have an Alcoholics Anonymous of sobriety and a way of life, and whatever you are, you're going to be better at. We never guaranteed a single soul they're going to make a ton of scratch or drive a big iron or live in a big house on a hill, or your woman's ever going to call you home. No, whatever you are, you're a ditch digger, you're going to be a better ditch digger. And if you'll hang around for a little bit, you'll be reunited with the sweetest thing you ever own in your life. The respect of yourself is an individual, is a person. Because before you got here, you left it on the street. If I had to isolate one thing that drove me down to the bottom of the barrel and down to my knees, I'd say it was the day that I recognized I had nothing going inside. The day that you stand there in the mirror and you find it difficult to shave because you got to look at you. And the days you're sitting in them gin mills and you look in the mirrors and the bars and the... And you can't look anymore and you start to find bars now that don't have mirrors because you can't tolerate what you're looking at. Because inside, that remorse is eating you alive until you get down to the point where you can't go any longer. That psychological second in the alcoholic's life when he's sick and tired of being sick and tired and doesn't know it. That total time when he says surrender. But I want to believe that that came to me in February the 23rd, 1954. I'm laying there on that rotten floor and I've been on a hell of a tear. And I got up off of the floor and it was a God-directed thing. And I walked in and I picked up a telephone and I got a whole information. And I said, I want alcoholics anonymous. They gave me the number. And I called the L.A. Central office and I talked to a guy over there. And he said, you got a drinking problem, son. And I said, yeah, I think I do. And he said, well, if you have a drinking problem, you, you never have to take another drink again if you don't want to. And he said, give yourself a break and write these numbers down. And they're numbers of alcoholics and call them. You get a hold of a guy and he'll be out to see you and he'll explain more. And so I wrote him down and I started to call him. Eventually I got a hold of a guy and he says, hang in and I'll be there. <clears throat> and eventually he came out and he sat down and he told me about this program. And my sponsor was one of them sponsors you hear about, them old hard-hearted sponsors. You know, went to school, I thought, for hard-hearted sponsors. And his attitude about the program was, this is the way it's going to be, boy. you got to want it bad. And you got to want it as bad as you wanted that whiskey. <clears throat> now, if you don't want it that bad, then you're wasting my time. And you're wasting A's time. And you're wasting your time. But he says, that's the way it has to be. Any length to get it. That's the way you went for booze. You lied, cheated, conned, stole, walked, drove, any length. You need us, and we don't need you, and don't forget it. He said, if you think we pick you up, you pick you guys up and take you to meetings, no. Then you got a car, you drive. He says, frankly, if you own a car, what the hell are you doing in AA? <laughs> yeah. He says, recently, though, uh, the last couple of years, we've softened up a great deal. We... We've been taking chances on guys with cars. And he said, a lot of you guys are working out. Yeah. 
He said, he hasn't got a car you can take the bus, and if you haven't got bus money, Sonny, he said, you can walk. He said, I'll guarantee you, you walk for that whiskey, and you can walk for the program. You better come and get it. Now, I'm not saying that's right, but I'm not saying it's wrong either. I'm saying that's the way the program was brought to me. I went to that first meeting that night in spite of him. I went there in spite of myself. I went there to show him, by God, I got a car. (laughs) I hope the hell he's there, because I'll mash him with it. That's what I want to do. I didn't like him. He said, I could, he says, I'll be your sponsor. Uh, no. Find another one somewhere, by God. But he ain't gonna, I don't like him. He was a rotten guy, and I drove down to that meeting. I'm disliking him all the way, and I pulled my car into the parking lot. And by God, there he was. And that surprised me a little, because I thought he was shucking me. He walked out of my car, and he opened the door, and I got out, and he put his arm around me, and we walked into the meeting, and I, I loved that guy from that day until the day he died. I can tell you, too, that he was a very controversial individual. Yeah. Very difficult man to understand. <laughs> a tremendous speaker. Carried the message to hundreds and thousands of people all over the United States. God knows how many people he helped out there. But he had a very difficult time in helping himself. <laughs> the program, you see, was the beat of it. The turning your will in your life over the care of anybody it was not for him. It was for other people. Chapter 6 is for everybody, but not for me. Tolerance, a God-given quality to let another man live his life and, and work his program the way he wants to work it, not the way I want to direct it. That wasn't for him. He was a director. He wanted to be the director. <clears throat> and he wanted to tell you how to operate out there. And <clears throat> he couldn't surrender. And people resented it. People wouldn't do the things he wanted them to do. And pretty soon the resentment started eating him alive until one day he decided he might drink a little. But his case was different. And he drank a little whiskey and he stayed out there 12 years. He... He tried to come back, you see, time and time again, but his ego wouldn't let him. His ego said, I'm the guy that carried the message to help the people. And all the people that I sponsored are now my sponsor. And he'd go back out. And then one day he had a severe heart attack and it drove him to his knees and he came back to us. And physically he couldn't drink anymore. And he had a year and a half and then he died. And in that year and a half he and I had a lot of conversation. We talked about a lot of things that were necessary. And we talked about a lot of things that weren't necessary. And we laughed a great deal and we cried a little bit. And I told him, I'll always love you. And You'll always be the sponsor. Guys like you made it possible for guys like me to be here today. If you hadn't come to see me, God knows how this thing would have worked out. Hell of a guy. Greatest sponsor I've ever had. The only sponsor I've ever had. Well, at that meeting that night, that old meeting down there at <coughs> Temple City, it was called a Temple City meeting, but I met in a town called Railsmead. I never did understand that. <laughs> but that old Temple City meeting was a very wealthy group. We had so much money in the group in those days, we had donuts before and after the meeting. That's hard to understand. <laughs> My God, we did. <laughs> we had those red jelly donuts. We didn't have those plain rotten donuts. We had red jelly donuts. They were good eating, and they were very good for new people. <clears throat> you see, a new guy comes through the door, and he's all green and hung out. <clears throat> and a red jelly donut committee would slide up on him. You know? <laughs> nice to have you here. You're new, aren't you? Would you like a donut? Oh, Jesus, no. <laughs> I don't know whether you ever looked at a red jelly note or not when you got a hangover, but <clears throat> it'll make your teeth itch, I'll guarantee you that. <clears throat> well, you know, the meeting began that night. It was typical of an AA meeting. <clears throat> and the people stood up and they talked. And the main speaker that night was a guy, Negro man out of <clears throat> the Central Avenue group in L.A. Nine and a half years sober, this guy says. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. Nine and a half years, street man out of L.A. I could identify, I understood what he was talking about. <clears throat> but the more he talked, you know, I identified in the beginning, but the more he talked, I lost identification because it wasn't that bad. He says, you know, I've been 70, 80 jails, and not me. And he drank something called Jamaica Ginger. 
<clears throat> and he gave him the Jake leg. And the crippled him up so bad to put him in a hospital for two months. The whole audience was hysterical over the fact he couldn't walk. My sponsor is sitting there nudging the hell. Did you hear it? Did you hear it, Norm, huh? <laughs> he can't walk, Norm. Ain't dead, folks. Jesus. Yeah, that's... What the hell's so funny about that? <laughs> and automatically, I'm thinking, I ain't that fat. I'm underqualified. What have I got to tell anybody, huh? I've been in 25 jails at the outside and I drag a little vitalis. That really doesn't qualify much. Little sneaky feet and a little aqua velva, but one time. You know, last year I heard a guy talking about drinking that aqua velva. He said the reason he gave it up and made his arm tired. <laughs> Shaking it out of the small hole, you know, yeah. <laughs> but anyway... I had the feeling, you see, that there wasn't any qualification and the identification was gone. But he made a profound statement. He said, it doesn't make any difference what you drank or where you drank it or how much you consumed is what it's doing to you. He said, man, if it's tearing up any part of your life, you don't have to go any farther than what he said that I come alive. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not so sure I want to quit drinking, but it's tore the hell out of my life. And I know one thing for sure, I just don't want to go any farther. Not really. And as I looked at that guy that night, the one thing I knew, Pastor, shot of a doubt that I never had to go another step farther if I didn't want to. Because he hadn't. Nine and a half years he hadn't. AA is a program of example, isn't it? You like what you see, you come on back and you see a little more. What he is speaks so loud, I cannot hear a word he says. He says nothing. All he has to say is, I'm from the streets, and I hadn't had a drink in nine and a half years, and you had to believe it. Because all you had to do was look, and you saw a man, a street man who was a man. A man among men who was clean, who was sharp, who was happy, whose eyes were clear, who laughed a great deal, who was dressed good. Man, he had a set of threads on, probably cost him a hundred. And I'm thinking, Jesus, if he didn't get nothing else out of AA, what a set of drapes he got. That is, <laughs> by God, that's all right. I'll hang around a little. Maybe they got another issue going down. Who knows? <laughs> and I'd already seen a couple of marks could have been hustled. There was a lot of potential in that group there. And he's making that statement of, I can make it, you can make it, you can do it. And I'm thinking, maybe, maybe I could. Because his life had been compounded by a lot of problems. Sure, he's wanted to divorce him and she'd remarry. And his kids all hated him. But he said one day a, pa- a miracle came to pass. He bought the package of this program. He had a change of attitude. And his kids came down to see him. And they learned to like him, to respect him, and to love him. And God, if I look around, what do I see? I see the big tough guys. The six-footers in AA. And the tears are screaming down their cheeks. The hay shakers out of South Almonte and Garvey Acres. The big, tough wrench mechanics sitting there and unashamed, and they cry. And the story is told, and I've heard it hundreds upon hundreds of times. But they would laugh because they were miserable, and they cried because they were happy, and they called it AA. And you say that's oversimplification. And it may be, but it's the only program I got. You see, I discovered through the laugh of the program I could clear out the wreckage of my past. And through the last of the program, I threw out the wreckage of the future when he walked down to see me. Through the last of the program, I discovered a way that I might live, to give a little, and want nothing in return. That I might take that thousand pounds of guilt off my back, and I will lay it down with the laughter and the joy that I find here. I will find a way to sit in a meeting and feel for another man. Difficult to do for people like me because I'm a taker. A taker of things and a user of people. I'm a loser. All takers are losers in or out of AA. To have something you must give and want nothing. And maybe it begins when you're sitting in an AA meeting. And I'm a month or so sober and a guy stands up in front of the meeting in South San Gabriel. His name was Frank. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. Old rotten Frank. I used to drink with him. He and I went on some terrible drunks. 
But he was such a rotten drinker and a mean son of a gun. 180 pounds of the meanest man I ever met in my life. He was that rotten I couldn't drink with him. And I lost track. And the years went by. And I'm sitting there in South San Gabriel that night. No rotten Frank standing up in front of the meeting. Down, he's clean and he's sharp. And the woman's coming out of the door and she's carrying a cake. And he's got three candles on it. And he leans down and he blows out the candles. Then he looks out there at the audience and the meeting and the tears are running down his face. Old mean rotten Frank's crying. Yeah. <laughs> and he looks out there at the people sitting in the audience and he says, Man, I ain't never had it so good. And he sat down and he said more than seven words than I said in 40 minutes. And I sat there and I got so choked up I thought I was going to die. And I felt the tears burn my eyes and I let them rip. And I cried because I was extremely happy because another man was happy. And not for myself. I learned to give. And there's room for all, isn't there? Everybody has got a place in here. You pick up the ice, raise the coffee cups. You make the coffee, you become the secretary of the group. You can send a service, general service. Well, better yet, the bottom line, go out there and call on the guy to certain. Sitting there on a one-on-one in the middle of the night and giving a little you to he and he to you. Have him say, pick me up, Norm. Or pick me up, Charlie. Take me to a meeting. And you pick him up and you take him. He grabs a hold of it and takes some more meetings. Then before you know it, he's going on his own. And then before you know it, a year passes by and he's standing up in front of the meeting one night. And he gets a cake and has got a candle on it, one year sober. And he looks out there and he sees it. He says, there he is. There's my sponsor right there. Jesus, there he is. He saved my life. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here. And as humble as we alcoholics are, you might turn to the guy sitting next to you and you might say, I'm his sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't do it because you're out there on some ego trip. You do it because you feel so good. You've got that self-feeling, that sense of well-being that you want to help, that you want to share with somebody else. That sense of well-being that I found when I drank the whiskey. I drank whiskey because it made me feel good, huh? You got ten drinks and you're feeling buzzy and good and you have ten more to feel ten times better. And you're up there on that plateau and you're buzzy all over. And you want to stay there forever, right? And I'd order one more to stay even. Down the chute I go. Yeah. One more trying to stay even. Down. I wake up in the morning and the buzz was gone. And in this place with that old friend of mine over Morris, he walked in every day. What do you say, Norm? Check my guts out. And I drank a little whiskey. He left. And I got reinstated with that sense of well-being. It was such a temporary thing. And I traded that in for the sense of well-being I've experienced here. And all I've had to do is be willing to be willing to give a little for the hell of it and want nothing in return. And I'd like to tell you folks that are new here tonight, God wants you to pass over. Once you get that whole thing, every day is a holiday and every meal is a banquet. And I wish I could tell you. But that isn't the guarantee as I made mention. Now, they're going to give you those equipment to stand out there when the days get moldy, when the days get tough. And you got to hang in while you got the equipment to stand there with. you got the book, you got the program, you got the friends, you got the phone numbers. <clears throat> and you stand there and you're counted. Nobody's exempt. I wish the hell we were. I don't like the rotten days. 1962, I had a bad year, that eight-year syndrome. Everything I touched turned to pucky. I couldn't hit a lick. Financially, I'm going down the chute. <clears throat> i got a bad program and i got a bad attitude. I'm sitting in a joint down in Miami Springs on business. And the bartender says, what do you have? I said, a double. <clears throat> there it is, huh? Just like that, and there it is, but for the grace of God. I didn't find it necessary to snap that angel off my shoulder. He took me back and let me remember who the hell I was. And maybe says, Norm, you're going to need a lot of strength before the year's out. Lo and behold, come September, I'm standing in front of St. Luke's Hospital. And I'm going, Jesus, why? Christ, why me? Why not them other guys? Give it to the new guy. Who did he heal? I don't need this. I have eight years. I'm exempt. I am not. I am Norm. I've never been given more than what I could pack. You know and I know. The old shooter upstairs, he 
cuts everything to size, doesn't he? He gets the big loads to the big horses and the small ones. He's always giving the guy's name Norm. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of standing around crying a poor mouth about what you didn't get or what you did get, maybe you ought to thank him, Norm, for what you have. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the 27 years, 5 months, and 17 days you gave me. Thank you very much for <clears throat> the 27 years you let me walk out there on the sunny side of the street. Because, hell, I know guys that never saw 27 days because they walked the street of booze and fantasy, busted dreams and broken hearts, tears by the bucket ball. They walked down and they went out hard with the heat on and the screws down. Old Sully that brought the program to me in 1946 in the city jail. He had three years of sobriety and then he went back out and he couldn't get back. And then one day his sister-in-law called me and she was on the program and she says, Norm, <clears throat> this is Ginger and I hate like hell to tell you, Norm, but Sully was drunk last night and he had an internal hemorrhage, Norm, and he bled to death and that's all there is. There ain't no more. Then he went out as high as he can go. He had the heat on all the way and the screws down and the pitiful part of it all was that he had to justify his existence to the bitter end <clears throat> because he was coming from behind and when you're coming from behind you're justifying everything. God knows I've been overpaid because I haven't had to justify my existence out there to anybody for a hell of a time. I've been able to walk out in the street and on the street I'm respected by myself and respected by people. I'm able to do a job, I'm able to go home at night, I'm able to walk in a house because I live in a house and in the house that I live in is a woman and she's a red-headed and an Irish woman and she's glad I'm coming in most of the time. Huh? Yeah. And she respects me, by God, for who I am that day, not for where I've been or where I'm going. She respects me because I'm her old man. And nobody cries in that joint today because their old man is drunk and tearing it up. And I ain't heard a kid of mine scream at me for years. And I've watched them go from small bandits into big bandits. And I sent them ones who wanted to go to school. I give them the opportunity to go to school and become educated bums if they want to do it. And they went, some of them. Huh? And I got a couple of sons today that are my business partners. I got daughters. One by one, I've walked them down. Downtown we've gone. And I've bought them their first pair of high heel shoes. Now, that don't sound like a hell of a lot unless you missed it. And then you know what I'm talking about. I, I walk in the store and she was nothing but a chicken. And she put on his shoes and she became a woman in front of my eyes. And I cried a little bit because the chickens of my life are women of my life. And they cried a little bit because I'm an old man. And then the jackasses come around the house and I cry a lot. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm either getting older or they're getting jackassier every year. I don't know. I still got one left of the house. She's the caboose. She's 17, and what's coming through the door now was incredible. <laughs> and I told her, I said, man, your sister brought him in bad, but baby, when I was drunk laying in the tank, throwing up on myself, I'm looking better than them right there <laughs> in my house. <laughs> and they don't believe you. But I walked all her sisters down the aisle, one by one by one, and I give them to these jackasses, let me tell you. And I cried one more time. But I'll tell you, I'm overpaid because all my son-in-laws, they all work and they all take baths. That ain't a bad deal. <laughs> I got one's a driller in the oil business. I got another that's a dentist. So what the hell, I'm going to have gas and teeth any way you want to look at it. <laughs> I got five granddaughters that tear up my house and rip the knobs off my television and put peanut butter in my slippers. And I... <laughs> And I got a grandson that'll be here in November. <laughs> and I'd like to really be able to tell you what I got, but hell, there's never, there's never the proper words, are they? How the hell can I tell you every loving thing I got is because of AA? How can I tell you that anything I'll ever be in my life is going to be because of the program? It took it, it took a metal giant to figure it out. Every loving thing I am is because of you. 
And it's been a hell of a walk from Lincoln Heights and the L.A. County Jail. And but for the grace of God and AA and you people, I could have missed it all. Thanks, man. God love you.